Hey everybody, welcome back to Footnotes with Dr. Tony Caffey. I'm Adam Castellino. With me as always is Pastor Tony. It's good to see you, Tony. Hey Adam, good to see you, my friend. Have you been singing hymns to your future son or daughter? No. Then sings my soul. That's a good one. Yeah, you should just go that's for it. I think you just yell it out. I've done other things to annoy my wife. And okay, so I'll tell you this story. Okay. If you plant the seed, then it'll pay back later. Oh, okay. So in the midst of COVID, we were meeting in the basement in my previous church, and I was singing like my full voice, you know, for the worship set. And and I was actually trying to do kind of like a Chris Tomlin thing, you know, like, <laughs> then sings my soul. I was really high up there, you know, trying to do my thing. And I heard this voice in the room that was like two octaves lower than mine, like really low. And I was like, who is trying to outsing the pastor in the room? Are you kidding me? I look around. Guess who it was? My son was singing next to me. And somehow in the teenage years, he had gone from like singing high to like singing lower than me (laughs) so there you go and it was kind of partially i was like i'm kind of annoyed that he sings lower than me yeah but then i was happy as well like all of my work now it's come to fruition he carried the torch into the next generation there you go so keep keep singing there adam all right all right um so we're continuing through the book of hebrews uh this week you taught on hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 And for those who don't obviously had a chance to listen, it's available on the website, of course. So we're just going to kind of jump in. You, well, this is the beginning of Hebrews getting into the meat of Jesus as the high priest. Yep. Jumping straight into a very critical and profound subject about the nature of Christ. Um, Very relevant relevant to uh, the Jewish audience who is attempting to move away back to the old ways and Hebrews writers contending with the fact that Jesus is the final great high priest. Um, You did this really interesting comparison where he says Jesus passed through the heavens. He said that's like the Old Testament high priest would pass through these three portals through the courtyard, the holy place and the most holy place of the tabernacle. And you said Jesus passed through the heavens, the three heavens. Right. Um, but some people may not be familiar with that. Why do we say there's three heavens? What does that mean? Where do we get? Yeah. So the Hebrew word for heaven is plural, Shemayim. And so whenever it shows up in the Old Testament, it's this pluralized concept. Now, the New Testament has both the plural and the singular form for heaven. So you try to wonder, you know, what is the author doing when they use a plural? Are they just kind of harking back to the Old Testament language, which Could be the case here with the Hebrews author. But Paul does have that reference to the third heaven um, where he enters into the presence of the Lord. He's speaking in third person. So Mm -hmm. uh, as I was reading this, you know, I was wondering if maybe there's an an echo to that kind of concept, that three heaven concept where you have the atmosphere, you have outer space, which obviously was a different construction to the first century mind than it is today. And then the third heaven would be the actual throne room of God, where there's this, uh, the experience that Paul described. I mean, he was like so overwhelmed by it, he couldn't even talk about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, the commentaries have made reference to this. And John MacArthur talked about this three heaven portal. Uh, So did R. Kent Hughes. And and I think... I think the Hebrews author has something like that in mind here, because he is correlating... You know, the holy place, the tabernacle with 
now there's a greater tabernacle. The construction of uh, the throne room of God is a kind of tabernacle uh, in the heaven, so to speak. And so staying with this idea of superiority, Jesus didn't just go into the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. He went into the Holy of Holies of Holies. You know, yeah. He went into the actual throne room of God. Sitting at the right hand of God, there's that kind of echo again to Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. So that's the the heavens uh, understanding in, um, in in the first century world and even before that. And and there is you know, understanding heaven is a hard thing actually. And as mm -hmm. kids, we kind of kind of get it like God's somewhere else. But you know what is it as you kind of explore it? And is it uh, another dimension, another sphere? Obviously, God is omnipresent, so how is, does he have a throne room? So kind of working through that, uh, I, I've come to the place where there is a an, another realm, there is another uh, uh, place, I don't even mind calling it a place, where God, in some manifest way, his glory is, is functional. They are similar to the tabernacle of the Old Testament world, and yet at the same time, that doesn't compromise God the Father's omnipresence and mm -hmm. his, uh, his you know, being everywhere and, and being powerful in every context. So what's your understanding of heaven? What do you add to that, Adam? Yeah, I think about it. I think it's really cool, the idea that Jesus' ascension kind of mirrored the priests entering. Like yep. you said, he uses that very specific phrase, pass through. And mm -hmm. when you think about it, this is consistent because Isaiah, I think 66 says... The throne room. God, like heaven is my throne. Yeah. So we could kind of think that there is obviously, at least from a figurative sense, that heaven is kind of mirrored by the tabernacle. So that is very consistent idea that Jesus, if he's the great high priest, he's going to the greater temple or throne of God. You mentioned Isaiah 66. There's also Isaiah 6 where Isaiah mm -hmm. enters into this throne room. That's and there's right. the angels crying out and he's just overwhelmed emotionally by yeah. everything going on. And that raises an interesting question because was he like Paul taken to the heavens spiritually? Was it simply a mm -hmm. vision? So there is this element of mystery about spiritual heaven. Like we could get, okay, the heavens being the atmosphere, the first heaven, our sky and then outer space is the second heaven. Mm -hmm. But then when you get to the third heaven, what we typically think of as heaven, it, we like words kind of escape us. Like mm -hmm. I think the idea of that heaven came from our literal concept of heaven. Like the idea in our language, trying to grasp these spiritual realities, God gave us the sky and space to help us understand spiritual heaven, which... For me, I always wondered, like, you know, it's is it outside the universe, which means it's even bigger than the universe since the universe is still expanding. Um, how did Christ ascend? Did he like, go up into the sky and then just translate, or did he keep journeying? It's got to be space? another dimension, some something like that. Yeah, right? I mean, remember the cosmonaut who goes into outer space and he says, "God's not here." Yeah. I think that was the first kind of entry into outer space mm -hmm. and there was that kind of primitive understanding oh god's yeah. in the the outer On space the region or something, or something yeah. like that but uh we, we got to be talking about a the presence of the lord because that's the way it's framed elsewhere in 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 some way where there's a dimensional space reality so that's why i think an altered yeah. dimension is probably the best way to go yeah. 
That, I mean, there's also in Job, remember all the angels kind of gather at the throne mm-hmm. of God and Satan's even there. Has to present himself, yeah. So, so yeah, so it's a spiritual place, but also a tangible place. I mean, Christ physically, his physical body is there, so it's not like it's all wisps and clouds. So it's fascinating to think about, and it's worth thinking about because that's where we're going one day, and so we should have that anticipation. We're going, just to clarify, we're going there and to be present with the Lord, but yeah. we're waiting an embodied existence back on mm-hmm. earth, right? A yeah. new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. And I've thought about that too, that New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, Revelation 21 mm-hmm. and 22. So we're embodied beings, you know, we're not wisps, as you said, yeah. or kind of floating around in some nether sphere. Mm-hmm. Um and yet there is a new heaven and a new earth, and there there is still that kind of dichotomy between the terrestrial land, you know, mm-hmm. um, where we'll be with this this uh, city that's built with all of these these glamorous items, mm-hmm. you know, diamonds and rubies and so forth. And then there's also a a heaven, and Jesus will be, I think, embodied. Uh, in that new Jerusalem, and in a way that we can see him and interact with him, God the Father, I don't, I don't think so. There's, mm. there's still that omnipresence reality. Yeah. There's still, you know, there his. I think of it kind of like the tabernacle. You know how the Lord kind of came and he manifested himself in some tangible way. In but, but obviously we couldn't say the Lord was contained in the Ark of the Covenant in yeah. the tabernacle. I mean, he cannot be contained. Mm-hmm. Some part of his essence, some. Some part of his being was manifested in that place. And it's funny, that tabernacle language, because Jesus would speak later, actually John speaking of Jesus, would speak of Jesus tabernacling among us, mm-hmm. you know. And so yeah. now that that tabernacle imagery is is built into the Emmanuel, who is God with us. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. We could talk about this all day. Um but in your message, you were talking about our confession. You said yeah. in the first uh, verse there, verse 14, it says, let us hold fast or cling to our confession. And you also said something interesting that belief is demonstrated through confession. Yeah. And Paul quotes Psalm 116.10, I believe, therefore I speak. Right. So there's this element of faith. That isn't just inside our hearts or our minds. It needs to come out and be expressed. James, of course, says faith without works is dead or, you know, the visible sign of faith needs to be there. Right. Um, so what are your thoughts on the nature of faith having this outward element? You know, what we call saving faith, biblical faith. Why is it more than just, oh, I believe in my heart. Jesus right. is Lord. From the overflow of the mouth, the heart speak. Or right. from the overflow of the heart, I get that backwards. The overflow of the heart, the mouth speak. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, and, and obviously we have. Uh, so let's go straight to the anomaly in our world. You know, we'll have we'll have people who can't speak, or we have people mm-hmm. who uh, don't have uh, either the ability because of handicap, uh, either with their their mouths or the the processing capacities of their brain. So, you know, this is my issue with a lot of things that happen in our world. You can't derive the principle from the anomaly that's out there. Right. Most human beings throughout human history have had the ability to articulate what's in their heart. And that's the idea that's derived from from this passage and also Romans 10, 9, you know. You confess with your mouth. What do we confess with, Paul? With your mouth. <laughs> you know, you got to talk. And 
you know, Christianity, in some ways, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. So forgive me as I kind of get cranky for a moment. <laughs> um, Christianity has always been a proselytizing religion, mm. right, Adam? We've mm-hmm. always been that way. And it's only in the modern world where proselytize. Oh, that's a dirty world. We don't proselytize. Yes, we do. <laughs> we we speak about our faith. We we talk about it. And it doesn't mean if you don't evangelize, you're not a Christian or something like that. It means that there's no such thing as a secretive Christian. Mm. Like I'm secretly a Christian, but don't ask me about it. And I won't, you know, Jesus would say, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you don't confess me, then I won't confess you. Know, yeah. Confession is... Um, an intrinsic part of of a changed heart and a relationship with Christ. And you see that pattern in the book of Acts. These people get saved. What's the first thing they do? They they start talking. Mm-hmm. They um you know they testify to what God has done for them. So I wanted to emphasize that point here because you know the author of Hebrews I almost said Paul. <laughs> the author of Hebrews here um he could have said let us hold fast to the gospel. Mm-hmm. He could have said, "Let's hold, let us hold fast to Christ," which he does in other places and other ways. But I think there's intentionality here with confession. Let us hold fast to our confession, to yeah. the the maybe a moment in which they stood before the church, the people he's writing to, and said, "I confess Jesus Christ. Baptize yeah. me." You know. Yeah. Um, so I I think that's a point of emphasis today. You know, Christianity has always been a proselytizing religion, even if you don't like that word proselytizing, you know, let me say it this way. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. There's, yeah. you know, you are non-secretive as a Christian. There's mm-hmm. no clandestine activity of faith. It's it's a it's an outward thing. It's a public thing. It's a verbal thing. And in whatever way you can verbalize, whether written or non-verbals or uh, through the vast majority of us speaking what we believe. Yeah. So... And that's true. And that always goes back to the great cost that comes with being a disciple. Yes. Because in America, historically, we could be a Christian and speak publicly and it's like, okay, it's fine. Um, it's be- that's becoming increasingly costly in our country. Yes. And in other countries, it's even more so. And so there is very a very real temptation for Christians in America and all over the world to keep it to themselves. Yeah. They're sincere believers, but... They understand that if they tell people about Christ, if they identify as a Christian to the world, they could lose their reputation, their families, their careers, even their life. But that doesn't change it. Our reward is in that heaven we just talked about. We are to confess and profess our faith, even if it costs us everything. And that is something that is scary and is intense, but we take comfort in knowing that even if we lose everything here, our lives are in Christ in eternity. And maybe that was the reason he used this word confession. Mm. Maybe it was a temptation in that first century world to be a silent Christian, a Jewish observing yeah. person who secretly held to Christ. Mm. And, um, you know, that's been a big issue of controversy in the modern world on the mission field. It's mm. the discipline or it's a term called contextualization. And how far do we contextualize mm. the gospel for a Muslim uh, community, for instance? Can a Muslim call themselves, the term is MBB. I'm a Muslim background believer. Hmm. And it's in some ways they're trying to equate it to the Messianic Jewish language that hmm. we use in the States. Uh, but, okay, 
can or so can you self-identify as a Muslim? You know, mm. I'm a Muslim, which I think etymologically just means servant. I'm trying to remember the whether that, that's the case or not. Um, and you know, can you project on your community? I'm I'm a Muslim mm. servant, but I'm also a Christian. Mm. You know, can you use that language? And it's a it's a heated debate among um, you know missionaries and people who work cross culturally and. My stance on it, although I'm not in a Muslim country, and it, it's really easy for me to say that in the safety of a, you know, the United States of America, is, mm. is you you gotta be more uh, overt than that and not covert. You've got to be, you know, conspicuously a follower of Jesus. And if you're kind of hiding behind terminology, that's uh, I think compromises what we see in the Scripture with some of the passages that we reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, obviously, this passage is getting into the meat of Jesus being the high priest. The writer continues in chapter 5, going into great detail, comparing him to the Levitical high priest and how he's Mm -hmm. surpassed it. And the reason why this is so wonderful and so important, because it cuts to the heart of the gospel, that Jesus isn't just God, who is far away and doesn't know us, but nor is he, as we talked about in the last episode, just a good teacher, just a good man. And that's how the world likes to dismiss or sum up Jesus. And they think they're being smart. They think they're being accommodating. Oh, he was a very good teacher. That's it. But the reality is he was and is God and man. And the reason he came to earth was to become our priest and the sacrifice for our salvation. And verse 15 shows why that's so important. He's not just a distant God who doesn't understand what we're going through and is just demanding all this from us and we have to just obey and not ask questions. He came to earth. He lived the life of a human being. He went through all the ups and downs that humans lived so that he can sympathize with us. No one can say, you don't know what it's like being me, God, because he does. Jesus walked the same earth you did. And so... On top of that, he never sinned, which yeah. is very good for us because that means he could come to aid, as he's, Hebrews says later, to those who are in need. Mm-hmm. So there's not really a question there. I just wanted to throw that out hey, there preach and, it, brother. and get, no, your, get your thoughts on all that. Jesus is like us. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus is not like us. Yeah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. Jesus is transcendent and he is imminent. Mm. Jesus is superior in every way, but he's also familiar with us and what we've gone through. And I don't know if there's a better passage in the Bible that really sums this up, this mm. great juxtaposition of imminence and transcendence and, and Jesus' sympathy with us, but also his superiority to us than Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Great passage. And, and taking us, this is what I love too about it, Adam, taking us from theological heights and beautiful imagery, going back to the Old Testament, all of this typology fulfilled in Christ, so intellectually satisfying to this is it's so practical for you. You mm-hmm. can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Yeah. And Jesus has been through what you've been through in terms of temptation. And even more so, more than you'll ever understand in terms of temptation. So he knows what that's like. Yeah. And I appreciated what you just said about, you know, none of us can, you know, 
turn to God and say, you don't know what it's like. No, he does yeah. know what it's like to be yeah. human. He dealt with human weaknesses, as this makes clear in uh, verse 15. And he's able to sympathize with us. Mm-hmm. And yet, so I'm so thankful that he was like us. He is like us. But I'm also thankful that he's not like us. Yeah. I mean, he knows it so well. He even knows what it's like to die. So there's no one can say, well, you didn't face death. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can't have a better high priest Mm -hmm. than Christ. Um, And because of that, as you said, we come before the throne of grace. I just wanted to stop here and say, like, what does that mean? What is the throne of grace? What is he evoking when he says that? Yeah, we're back into that uh, that other dimensional realm, mm-hmm. whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, and, and it could be metaphor in terms of we have uh, a gracious God mm. who sits on the throne of grace instead of a, a throne of law or mm. on a throne of judgment. Yeah. But I think it is Psalm 110 again. You know, mm. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding on our behalf. Yeah. So and that's an important psalm. You know, go read that psalm, mm-hmm. those of you who are studying Hebrews right now, because you really can't understand parts of Hebrews without yeah. understanding Psalm 110. Later, he'll link Melchizedek to mm-hmm. Jesus. But I, I mean, I think that's the idea here is that uh, there's a throne room in the presence of the Lord. It's a throne room that's built not on judgment, but on grace. And that grace has been made possible by what Jesus has done for us, which which now as he's at that right-hand place, that place of eminence. He uh, intercedes for us. He represents us before God the Father. God the Father doesn't see us in our sinfulness. He sees Christ mm-hmm. and what Christ has done for us. So I, I think that's the the throne. Yeah. And probably harking back as well to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, I was just going to say is that, yeah. a kind of throne for mm-hmm. the Lord in the Old Testament world. That's why you know, the the great part about the Old Testament, to really understand it, is is how fearsome God really is. Mm. And, you know, this all these rituals that involve approaching God because, you know, it's just signal to man, you're sinful, 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 sinful. Even the great, even the, not the great high priest, but the high priest in that day mm-hmm. had to go through all of this rigmarole to even get close to the, the Lord, get close to the throne room. He could only do it once a year on Yom Kippur. And mm-hmm. even then he was probably trembling because he <laughs> might die as he's before the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkling blood on behalf of the people. So that, <clears throat> you know, the veil has been torn as mm-hmm. Jesus died on the cross that access to God has been made possible now through what Jesus has done for us. And so we dare not approach the throne uh, or God the Father on our own account. Mm. Like, look at me, God, I'm so special. No, we go through the blood of Jesus. We go because Jesus has made it possible for us to have grace and and uh, existence even and presence in the throne. And and we don't have to be afraid, you know. The Lord's not going to melt our face off, yeah. Like uh, like we see in you know Indiana Jones, the first one where they open up the <laughs> Ark of the Covenant, everybody's dead, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, and that makes sense within the context of Hebrews that he's using, he's comparing that with the Old Testament. Like every time a believer had to come before the Lord, they needed follow a certain protocol. Yep. I remember, in I've been reading it recently, but in First Samuel. When the, the people were going to get wiped out by the Philistines, they went to Samuel and said, help us, intercede for us. And he offered up a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering. Mm. That was necessary in order to ask God for help and to petition him and then God answers. And so there was that built-in fear 
and trepidation that if we don't do things perfectly, we could either not be heard by God or, or miss out. But here he's saying we don't have to fear those protocols because Christ is our high priest. He's the sacrifice. We come with confidence or boldness yeah. to a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment or fear. And so it's very it's it's awesome how he does that comparison. Um and, and there's going to be so much detail on that in yeah. the coming chapters that I mean it's it's absolutely it's really helpful to have you know the book of Leviticus, the book of Exodus, even Psalm 110 I mentioned, have that at your ready because mm-hmm. you're going to need that to really make sense of what he's doing here in terms of the typology. That was then, yeah. Jesus is now. Yeah. That's the essence of of what follows. And to follow up with that, one final thought, um, he says we come boldly before God or with confidence. So how do we balance that, if we want to use the word balance, with the idea that we still need reverence mm-hmm. and fear of God? And for some Christians, it's the opposite problem. They, they have trouble having that kind of confidence mm-hmm. um, to come before God. Well, the boldness implicit to that boldness, intrinsic in that boldness is our identity in Christ. Mm. So confidence without Christ is misplaced. Right. And so and so in that way it's not mutually exclusive this idea of reverence and confidence. We revere the Lord, we revere even, you know, uh, God the Father uh still and this awesome first person of the Trinity who um you know through Christ, we've dealt with that already, created the world. Um, so, I mean, there there still is reverence built into our confidence. We, mm-hmm. we uh, God is awesome. God is terrifying. And yet we don't have to be terrified because we are in Christ Jesus. So, I mean, there's, um, there's analogies that are imperfect here in terms of your parents. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I remember a story once about uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was... Uh, commanding his troops, and there were like a thousand people that kind of saluted him as he was walking mm. off the plane, and his son was with him. And his son, you know, there's all these guys, these military personnel who had fought in the war, or maybe who had suffered, who had mm. great authority, colonels and generals and, and you know, sergeants, these powerful people, and, and they're all, you know, <laughs> saluting him as he's walking, yeah. you know, between all these troops. He's like, man, I'm the most important person in the world. No, they're saluting Dwight D. Eisenhower and your your whole um, identity is wrapped up in being the son of mm. Dwight D. Eisenhower. That's why you're commanding this respect in this moment. So um, I, I guess poor analogy maybe, but the idea here is that, yes, there's reverence, there's respect wrapped up in Christ Jesus and our our uh, association with him makes, makes this possible where mm-hmm. we can... Still be reverent, still be, you know, acknowledge the sovereign, terrifying God of the world. Who, who by the way, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming mm. back as a baby in the manger yeah. or he's not coming back to die on the cross again. That work is done. He's yeah. coming back with fearsome power to mm-hmm. destroy his enemies. Yeah. And so there, I think we can have confidence in that moment, Adam. Yeah. Like we're going to be terrified. Like, oh, my goodness, Jesus is destroying our enemies in front of us. But I don't have to be afraid because I'm I'm with him. Yeah, you know. So I I think that'll be a um, kind of the, the bringing together of both confidence and reverence in that moment. Yeah, and that's an interesting 
way to look at it that we could have confidence and be bold because of how powerful he is. And and that kind of breeds a reverence in and of itself that like I could come before my Lord, almighty God. And, and the fact that I can have mercy and grace and come to him with confidence that produces even more like humility and reverence that he would do this for me. And I think they're not necessarily competing ideas. As you said, they, they work together. So, um, I think we can be joyful and, and, and take heart in that. Um, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Question for you. Okay. How come I'm not priest Tony? How come you call me Pastor Tony? Oh, because in Christ, we are a nation of priests. Um, as Luther says, the priesthood of all believers. Yep. And in that sense, we're not priests to one another. In a sense, we're priests to the world, like carrying the message of the good mm. news to the world so that they can then come and be saved. So, and I think there's implications of that in the coming kingdom because that language is used a lot in the book of Revelation. So, yep, I like the term pastor because that's my shepherding role. First yep. Peter five uh, mm-hmm. and other places, or elder. We talked about that yeah. as well. You know, the teaching elder for the church. But yeah, don't call me a priest unless mm-hmm. you're willing to call everybody else a priest. <laughs> I believe as a reformed mm-hmm. follower of Jesus in the priesthood of all believers. So, That's right. So thanks for leading this podcast, Priest Adam. Good job. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so there's been Footnotes with Tony Caffey. Um, every episode's available at vbvf.org, also on uh, podcast apps. And uh, thank you, Tony, for being here with us. And we'll see you next time.